0: Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start
1: the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. Boo! So, I had a moment yesterday, Sunday night. I'm recording this on Monday. Far too late in the day for my lovely producers and engineers to splice this just this audio treasure into my newest podcast. Sorry, Kristen and Kevin and well, I never realized that. Who are your producers? Kevin and Kristen. Kristen and Kevin. KK Well, good thing there's no like Kathy. That'd be rough. Couldn't be like It's the K K K's. <laughs> They produce my podcast, and uh yeah, they like to work by um tiki light yeah they 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 work by uh, torch they they like the the lights dimmed, but they use a torch to sort of you know see what they're doing that's dark sheesh that's a fucking whoa who expected this rant to go that dark that quick uh nothing a torch can't fucking illuminate, oh my god, never mind I take it all back psycho um I had a moment I had a moment this weekend and you know I was with my mom and my kid just spent a nice weekend with my fam my wife's family my family wow you just caught me I felt weird saying my family even though they're my family right I mean granted in-laws I'm not related by blood and the reality is you know push came to shove there was a fire in the house Eh, they're going to rescue everyone first before the, uh, you know, before the son-in-law, right? And who could blame them? I don't have the same memories, the same experiences. I haven't, you know, been indoctrinated for the last 30 plus years into the family routine. I get it. I'm still learning my stripes here. I'm fine with it. But, you know, they are my family. And I love them. And they're very good to me. Very good to my kid. Very good to my wife. Who is you know, part of their bloodline, so what would you expect? But I was with my family, and uh, we had a nice weekend together, and then I took my kid over to my mom's house with my wife. My mom has a really nice apartment in a beach city in Los Angeles, one that I will not, you know, I won't give you the exact name of, because there are some fucking kooks out there, and I don't need any of you crazies going to... You know, visit my mom unannounced. And granted, she'd probably love a friend. You know, probably you'd probably immediately regret it. You'd go there to spook her and scare her and be a fucking creep ball, and she'd be like, "Come on in, I'm making lasagna." Um, she's a great woman, but <laughs> you know, I got to my mom's my mom's crib. I'm 32, I say crib still. I got to my mom's crib, you know what I'm saying? I got to my mom's house, and with my kid and my wife, and we picked up something nice, some good takeout food from a, just a roasted chicken restaurant with a, just a myriad of sides, you know? I'm Just a wealth of different pasta salads and the rices and the fucking all the you know the fun veggies i I just love a good side dish i gotta be honest i'm in it for the side dish the protein the entree in quotes take it or leave it i'm a side dish boy you could take me to a fucking steak joint and they could say we're at a steak and i would say no problem i'd say who's disappointed not me Plenty of people would walk right out that door. They'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? You're Mastro's. You're Arnie Morton's. You're the palm. You don't have steak. I'm fucking out of here. I'd be like, um, ma'am, I'm sorry you ran out of steak. Do you have macaroni and cheese, a delicious bread basket, various salads, and perhaps a hot chocolate lava dessert? Because if so, I'm not fucking moving, ma'am. And I'm sorry that I cursed at you 'cause you're, we just met. And this is I'm being far too aggressive. I'm in it for the side dishes. Anyway, we go to this rotisserie chicken place. It's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? We pick it up. I had a little Postmates credit. I did a little work for Postmates. I didn't even pay for the chicken. I mean, you know, it's these, these little things. And, and, you know, I'll be honest and I'm not bragging. I got scratch. I'm doing okay. I'm doing well. Let's let's be clear here. I have a very mediocrely successful podcast. I'm doing fine. <laughs> but, you know, I can afford some chicken, but it's nice when someone else pays for it. Um, so we get the chicken, and we get the sides. It's beautiful. We go to my mom's house. We walk in. She has this adorable one-bedroom apartment, nice view. And it's just like, I don't know, man. I was looking around this apartment. Looking at how happy my mom was playing with my son. Looking at my wife. And I was overcome with gratitude for my life. And I don't know if you're anything like me. But I can get bogged down with some bullshit. I don't. Sorry, I'm doing like a weird quasi-Sebastian Maniscalco-Lisa-Lampanelli hybrid impression right now. But, you know, sometimes I feel like this is the real me, the way I'm talking now. I mean the way I'm talking now. But like, you know, sometimes I get so fucking bogged down in just like the trivial nature of existence on this earth, especially when you live in a coastal city of a first world country. I know you know what I'm talking about. Because the reality is we're all walking around one percenters anyway, right? I mean, if you can even afford to live in these major cities in America, you're probably doing better, in quotes, of, you know, better than most of of the world as far as, you know, maybe not happier, but conveniences, accessibility, opportunity, comforts, you know, accessibility to healthcare and whatnot. So all these things, you know, like... All these things are a true reality and yet, you know, on any given day you catch me at the wrong time and I could literally think the sky is falling. And it's not that I acted out or that I have these, you know, sort of, that I have these moments publicly. It's just sort of like a, a it's like a, a tape that's running in my head at all times. It's kind of like, it's like a song that's on repeat. You know, there's no shuffle in my internal playlist. It's kind of like, you know, dancing to the old shit. Dancing to the shitties. <laughs> it's dancing to the shitties on 105 K Um And it's just the radio station that goes on in my head most days. And it's probably just like a fun mix of, of just uh, resting a little bit of envy and jealousy of people that are doing better than me. A little bit of a superiority and thinking I'm better than people that perhaps aren't doing as well as me. And a general self-centered discomfort that's born out of, a uh, let's be real here, a lack of gratitude, right? And the truth of the matter is, is that we as a people, man, woman, you know... We're built for dissatisfaction, right? Because it it helped progress us throughout nature. It helped evolution. You know, if we weren't dissatisfied with freezing to death in a goddamn cave 2,000 years ago, it was probably more. 5,000. You know what I'm saying. A million. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. But like... If we didn't become dissatisfied with that or of dying of the Black Plague or of, you know, a myriad of other things that were wiping us out in mass numbers, we never would have solved these things. Dissatisfaction is ingrained in us as it's our nature. It's what pushes us to keep, you know, discovering and wanting to make... um, you know, I don't know, growth, achievement, uh, uh, exploration, discovery. So I don't think it's any wonder when we find ourselves thoroughly um, unhappy with the situation in which we find ourselves, even when, you know, the reality is it's all, it's not bad. It's all pretty good. So anyway, and I, trust me, I get tired of hearing myself uh, bitch about how good my life is. But I I just, I, 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 I offer that in the hopes that other people can relate and know that they're not alone in these feelings and like, what's wrong with me? Because if anything, the magic of my life has been the idea that I've found groups of people who feel similarly to the way that I do. And they somehow have found a way to have like a happy, wonderful life, despite those feelings or that inner negative chatter or that self-criticism or that, you know, gloom and doom thinking. They've been able to sort of supersede that to overcome it and not let it like bog them down in their everyday life all the time. There are moments. Emotions are like weather, you know, you can't fight it. If it's going to rain, it's going to rain. But you know, overall, maybe it, you know they're more sunny days than not. unless your you know inner emotional weather pattern is that of um of a coastal city in Washington or British Columbia, Canada. And if that's the case, well, it's fucking rainy a lot. and well, you should probably seek professional help not. Don't listen to me. What do I know? Um, but anyway, I qualify that to say that I am sometimes unaware of the the, the blessings and like the beautiful things in my life, you know. And I would imagine that I'm not that special and unique, and that other people feel the exact same way. Um, and you know, if I'm being honest, like I, I've I get to do a lot of things in my life that I really love, and I do other things in my life to pay my bills. And to take care of the people I love, like my kid and my wife and my mom. And I don't think that is dissimilar to how most people approach their work. You know, that it's not perhaps a great passion for many people, the thing that brings them financial security. But the result of said financial security, the result of going and working at H&R Block, and I don't mean to project, maybe you love spreadsheets. You know, you maybe you're a tax whiz and I'm just an asshole, but I'm just saying I know there are plenty of people that don't love their job, but they love the life that it affords them. And thus they put in a hard eight hours of work a day and then, you know, they enjoy whatever that begets. And I, you know, I have my own version of that, be it like this podcast, which I love and is probably like my greatest, most fulfilling passion and makes me a little little scratch to pay the bills. And then, you know, obviously like acting and movies and television, something that I'm deeply passionate about and have and loved and and writing and directing and, and the whole thing, which I've, I've been afforded at times to do and hopefully might be able to do more. And then I do like the social media, YouTube, Instagram, internet stuff for different brands and whatnot, which isn't necessarily my favorite thing, but something I'm like ultra appreciative of and that I get to work with cool people and and that. You know, inevitably the that it makes me, you know, a certain amount of money that, that allows me to live life and, and be reasonably comfortable and not have to like, to not have to sweat it because I did sweat it a lot of my life. And to not have had to do that over the last couple of years has been a great, um, a really, you know, it's a blessing. So I feel lucky to have those those things, even if at times, you know, it's uh, perhaps not my favorite. And so, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm looking around at my mom and my wife and my kid and we're eating the chicken with the side dishes in her nice apartment with the sun going down and I'm getting fucking emotional here. <laughs> I just, you know, I looked at what, like, those, you know, particular jobs in which aren't my favorite but, you know, do afford me a certain lifestyle, like, what, you know, what those jobs give me and what it gives the people that I love, that it allows my mom to have a nice apartment. It's not a mansion. I don't play for the Lakers. If she had said to me, Josh, I love you and I'm proud of you as a son, but until you get me a mini mansion in fucking Bel Air, well, let's not talk. My mother and I would never talk again. That's never going to be a reality. But the fact that I can get her a nice one-bedroom apartment and that she can order, order a couch from Macy's on layaway and make the payments on time every month without sweating it in a, you know, rather nice beach community is a fucking blessing, man. And the work that I do affords that. And that's that is those are the moments, you know. Those are the moments where I'm reminded why it's all worthwhile. And I imagine, you know, people listening to this podcast, you have it too, man. And it's a false equivalency because the things that that I do that perhaps aren't my favorite, people would probably die to get to do. Well, maybe not. Maybe if they did it long enough, they'd be like, oh, this actually does kind of suck. Nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. You know, it's just like... I don't think I'm alone in that where people are constantly on a day-to-day basis, you know, enjoying the life that they have from the work that they tolerate. So it was emotional and I was grateful. It was nice to see what what, you know, the life that uh that has occurred from from this this amount of work and this particular kind of work, you know? And that everybody gets to Everybody gets to eat. We're all we all eating over here, you know? We're all eating, and the food is good. It's not lobster, but it ain't fucking, you know, lunchables either. It's right down the middle. My income, if we had to talk about it and, you know, if we were gauging it by food standards, and maybe the top was like a three Michelin star $500 a plate restaurant, and the bottom was... I don't know, fucking government cheese and Top Ramen. I'm living right at Cheesecake Factory. And a couple times a year, Ruth Chris Steakhouse. And that, to me, is fucking flourishing. Don't at me. (laughs) Um, And you know, the reality is that I would miss all these moments if I wasn't sober. So that's just like my own little, you know, uh, my own sort of little ellipses. Ellipses? That makes no sense. It's just, it's like my own little P.S., my own little extra that I just wouldn't have this life if I wasn't sober. Um, all right. On today's show, David Epstein, author, brilliant guy. Um, he has written a book that is out now called range. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world. I'm fascinated by him. We kind of jump right into talking about the book. Like right away. I don't do, I wasn't a good interviewer on this one in the sense that I didn't give you like a lot of backstory about him or, 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 or the book necessarily. Um, we kind of just, oh, Jesus, that's my phone. I'm so embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Anyway, um, I don't give you a lot of backstory, but trust me, it, as you listen to the interview, you'll understand the book more and kind of his, you know, journey and his career. And, and he's just a lovely guy. And I felt so lucky that I got to talk to him. And you should go buy his book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Hope you enjoy the interview. Here he is. Oh, that's crispy levels, dude! Thank you for doing this. It's my pleasure. This is great.
3: Thanks for having me, and thanks for coming to me. I really appreciate that.
1: Anytime. Just to sort of paint the pic, the picture for the audience, we are in uh, sort of the Art Deco, yeah, uh, inspired hotel room.
3: Definitely, yeah. Art Deco with sort of a, I think like a, a music theme for sure. Some speakers. Some. It looks like the pillow is a cassette tape. Yeah. Definitely some some extreme choices. You're sitting in a gold hand.
1: I indeed in a large I am. gold hand. Thank you yeah. for illustrating that. Yeah. You're in some
3: faux maybe cow fur or something? I'm not sure. It's a perfect podcast setup. Very perfect ideal. That's you know, that's why I'm here. Um so you know
1: it's funny, I read your book and I have done my best to be a good podcast host, so I've now listened to you on Larry Wilmore. Okay. And on uh, Bill Simmons. Okay. And some other podcasts with a guy who seemed very uh, driven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah, that one. And so I wonder with, I imagine you've done, you know, an insane amount of press for this book. Do you want to start this podcast? Is there anything that you haven't been asked yet? Is there anything you've been dying to talk about? Or are you just so
3: fucking talked out? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, let me, let me think if I go through, you know, there's one of the chapters I, I haven't been asked much about the second to last chapter of the book. Mm. I think that's partly because first of all, it was the hardest thing for me to write of any, cha- I have two books that I've written and it was by far the hardest chapter of any book because it involves like sort of a double reveal and, and like, there's some technical information and I think also the concept in that chapter is sort of more difficult, so I haven't been asked about it much at all. Mm. Um, So I don't know if that means, like, maybe I shouldn't bring it up because people aren't asking me about it for a reason because it's a little more difficult to summarize. But there are also some stories in there that I think are are really interesting, like one about, you know, special operations pair rescue commander that I haven't been asked about at all that I think is really interesting. But I think the, the concept of that chapter maybe scares some people away.
1: Give it to us. Okay. I mean, I, I I could paraphrase it, but I feel like it. You know, I've got the man here. Okay. So, in okay. your own
3: words. So, so that chapter is called "Learning to Drop Our Familiar Tools," and and what that means. So I'll, If I can, I set it up like a little bit. Yeah. I, because however I want? and okay.
1: uh, and I remember there was the pararescue and also the firefighter.
3: Right. So it starts with the firefighters, and so that that. Dropping your tools is this phrase that the sociologist Carl Weick uses, and it came from fi- wilderness firefighters who, you know, parachute into a fire. They dig trenches around it, essentially. And what he would note they're really good at what they do. They're very highly trained. But what he would notice is when something unfamiliar would happen, say, like a fire would, would jump a creek and start chasing them uphill, and they had to improvise, they would often die. They would be caught by the fire, mm. and they would often die with their heavy tools. You know with like 100 or 200 pounds of equipment when some when they could have dropped them and run and gotten to safety sometimes even when they're ordered like drop your tools and run they wouldn't do it and in, and so you'd see these these reports of the bodies that were found saying they still have their axe they still have saws and all these things and um and he sort of wondered why... And even actually when when sometimes people would drop their tools and get to safety, they would say, like, I couldn't believe I was getting rid of my tool, you know, to look for a safe place to put it. right? Because they'd been trained in such a specialized way to do, like, the same thing over and over. It was, like, almost unconscious that they had these tools with them. They didn't even realize that they could drop them because that was so central to their identity as firefighters. But sometimes when something unusual happened, they have to improvise. And so Wyke saw this inability to improvise as, like, an unwillingness to drop your tools. And he saw that as like a a an allegory for what he saw in all these other industries where he studies industries where when there's a failure it's like catastrophic like loss of life and things like that yeah and he would see that because um the downside of failure in those industries you know like commercial flight and things like that is is so momentous there'd be this incredible training push to like learn certain procedures so well that they basically become automated. Like, you know, they move from your prefrontal cortex to the back part of your brain where you're, like, doing stuff automatically without thinking. The problem is when something um, unusual happens, when you see a new problem in those cases, you're you're so sort of automated that you lose the ability to improv even in a way that sometimes, like, more novice people can, where they're not as, like, stuck in those sorts of procedures. And one of the ways to help people get out of that automated um, sort of mode so that they can both have that specialized training and be able to improvise is by like confusing them a little bit about how they'll be held accountable so this sounds really weird see this this is why i don't get asked about this chapter because it's like way more involved in the conceptual side oh, than no, all we're the other here parts for it. and and so so for example in in some of the research i cite um, human resources managers are being given uh, job applications or fake job applications. And then they can see, and they have to predict how an applicant would perform in the job. And then they can see like the result, the fake results. And the idea is like, will they learn to become good predictors of that? And in mm-hmm. some cases the people are told like, okay, this is the, you know, this is your company's process. This is how you weight the person's different skills. Um, and you're going to be held accountable for your, how you make those decisions. And they will stick very tightly to those, To those rules, they've been told, even when it's totally obvious that they're not working well, and you can easily come up with better rules. In other situations, people are told, like you'll be held only accountable only for your accuracy. Make the decisions however you want. And in those cases, the people never use the traditional rules, even when they do work. So, in in if people feel like they're being held accountable for their process, they will stick very tightly to like what's been done in the past. And if they feel like they're being Held accountable for their outcomes, then they will like not use even useful information from the past. So one is you know in the psychology lingo is errors of, of reckless conformity, and the other is errors of reckless deviance, basically. Um, and the way that you can you, you want to like diversify an organization's culture to get people to break out of that, where if they feel like they're being held accountable for their process. So in in one of these studies, the researchers then gave them this fake research that showed you know, thriving organizations prize like independence of thought and improvisation and all these things. And all of a sudden, the people would start learning with every applicant where sometimes they would fall back on the old rules, but also they would sometimes try to discover new ones. Mm. Or the people who felt that they were being held accountable for only outcomes, they would give them research that said, like, teams have to have cohesion and consensus and all this stuff. And they would suddenly start learning too from where they wouldn't deviate for no reason and would use the old rules, but also improv. And so by by like sort of confusing people about the culture, you'd, you'd, they would start learning essentially, instead of just like defaulting to one strategy or another. And so the context I put this in with this, this pair rescue commander was a guy who was in Afghanistan. He's commanding these special operations guys who, who go into action only when someone has a really bad day, basically. They're like, you know, these super, um, high performers. And if, there was in this case there was an explosion in the middle of an army caravan and the problem was this commander could not get any good information he was telling me like in hollywood you know like where we are now like the the drone like flies over and you get all the information back and then you like go into action but in this case it's like there's dust and like the drones out of batteries and like you you know stuff goes like you don't get real information the shit has hit the fan exactly (laughs) yeah and so in this case, they knew they had serious injuries, like life-threatening injuries. But they didn't know how many. They didn't know how mobile the caravan was. They didn't know if there was an enemy nearby. They didn't have, like, all this information. And so they couldn't go through their normal decision matrix where you kind of say, like, if this, then that. And so they're, they're left to improv, basically. And what he ultimately decided to do was to take himself off the mission in order to— because he, he decided that I don't want to have to go there twice, basically. And we don't know how many— patients they're going to be, but I'm estimating, you know, between like three and 15 and we're going to be so packed with equipment, you know, and fuel. And I'm going to take myself out because I think we need the space to be able to like improv if we have to like shove guys into the, into the helicopter. And his, some of his men sort of freaked out about that because like the commander's not going to go on this, on this mission where they don't really know what's happening, and he decided to stick with that and it ultimately, you know, it turned out to be a good decision. They saved everyone. Um, some, some limbs were lost, but they saved all the lives. And he, you know, was awarded like the, an officer of the year at his base and all these things. But what, when I was talking to him, what he felt was this incredibly strong, I um, think incredibly strong push to conform. Like they're, they're, all their operation is based on consent, you know, on unity essentially mm. on cohesiveness and so there's this incredibly strong pressure to just go with the guys and like do what they say but at the same time in situations like that he also felt like you know what ultimately happens is on me so he had this sort of mixed culture where it made sure that he would not deviate without feeling really really strongly about it but that he felt outcome accountable enough that in certain situations he would be willing to improv and so the, the thing is i mean when he was talking to me about it we were sitting at the world war Two memorial and he's talking about how his guys responded when he said like i'm not going he he broke down in tears you know this like big square like lantern jawed like special operations commander and the the thing and and so it's very difficult decision for him even now you know some of the guys later admitted like you made the right call we needed every inch of space that we Mm -hmm. had there um and others sort of just never talked about it again but you actually want people to be in those uncomfortable spots where they're getting these mixed cultural signals so that they're, they, they don't depart from from well-known procedures easily, but that they are willing to do so when they're facing unknown circumstances. And so it, it's sort of by, by mixing some of your cultural cues or diversifying the culture, you can actually put people in a position where, Where they're willing to improv, but won't do so recklessly, basically. So nobody's asked me about that because it takes me that long to explain it. So I'm sure that's why nobody's asked me about it.
1: I love it. And it's slightly reminiscent, although a little different um, from something that your bestie, Malcolm Gladwell, has talked about Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in his podcast, Revisionist History, where I remember there was an entire episode devoted to the willingness to be disagreeable.
3: Yeah, and yeah.
1: the pressures people face. And he cites a guy, how Wilt Chamberlain had a sort of renowned terrible shooting record when it came to foul shot shooting, and how that they had discovered that if you shoot it like a grandma, Underhanded. Yeah, that just yeah. the 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 metrics of that, like the equation, the geometry of the way the ball is released, was actually much more beneficial to the yeah. shooter. Like yeah. you had a much higher likelihood. But the mere idea of a you know Clydesdale of a man like yeah. Will Chamberlain shooting, shooting like that, he can do
3: it. it. It's that's so crazy. And this is sort of a tangent, but like because I used to be the science writer at Sports Illustrated, and I remember helping report this story about like big hits basically because the the question was in the NFL they have all these shows like displaying the big hits but also like we're worrying about head trauma so how do we square these things where you're like you know doing shows with the biggest hits highlights and guys are getting their heads knocked off right and i remember And this wasn't even apropos of head injury, but I remember talking to some of the guys and asking them about, like, protective measures they take. And you would realize that a lot of guys didn't even wear some of the voluntary padding, you know, like, around their hips and all these things. And basically, they would be like, nobody wants to look all frumpy on TV, like, wearing all those pads and stuff like that. And you're like, these things that you don't really think about, even at the highest level, are are affecting people.
1: No, of course. I mean, we all... Yeah, I mean you want to look dope out there. Exactly. Yeah. All eyes are best. on you. Yeah. yeah. I mean you're on sports And, and feel
3: dope, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um and do you think like to your to what you were saying before, like sort of the, the rigidity of the way in which we're taught things and sort of the the also like I, I think you referenced Dr. Gawandi in the book with the his book, you know, the checklist yep. manifesto and whatnot, and how we're so like to your point, like if if this, then that, and if not this, then that. It's like the nature of teaching improvisation is, is the problem that it's so, it's exactly what it is. It's right. improvisation. How do we right. teach it? How do we prepare someone to react accordingly in those
3: moments? That's right. I mean, so it's like literally something you can't exactly teach because mm. what you're looking for is is new behavior or new creation, right? Which is a lot harder to teach than like here's how you do this thing step a step b step c right and so you can only sort of set up systems that that allow people to like practice improv or feel empowered to improv so for example in in those special operations because those are the guys that they know they're going to be dealing with things that they can't predict right and it's and it's often like weird stuff like someone fell into a well at high altitude on like a sheer cliff in afghanistan like it's stuff that like you know, whatever. You just can't always end. And there's some like – and also like an animal fell in on top. Like there's just yeah. like stuff that you would never think and of. And it's right?
1: probably a waste of time to prepare for. Right, right,
3: <laughs> right. right. And so what they do do, they, they are cognizant of this this finding that I touch on in range that, that – that about this body of research that can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Transfer is the term psychologists use to mean your ability to take knowledge or skills – and apply it to problems you have not seen before. Like transfer it to new situations. So if you're facing the same challenges over and over and over, that's not really important. But that's not a lot of, not, you know, a lot of us aren't in that situation. Certainly those guys aren't. And so in their training, and what predicts your ability to do that is is how broad your training base is. So let me give you like an example from learning math. So if you give, there was just a really cool study where 7th grade classrooms were randomized to different types of math training. And... If the students are given, like, certain types of problems, say, like, problem type A, 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 a and they do it over and over and over and over, and then B, 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 over and over and over and over, they learn what's called using procedures knowledge, where they learn very well how to – they make quick progress. They learn how to execute a series of procedures for that type of problem. Mm. If, you, if you give the kids other types of things where they never face what's called, like, interleaving, where you never show them the same problem type twice exactly, so they're never, like, doing this repetitive thing, and it's always a little different, they are more frustrated – Their progress appears slower. They rate their teacher worse. And then when the test comes along where it's new problems for everyone, ones I haven't seen exactly, they destroy the group that has the using procedures knowledge. Because they learn what's called making connections knowledge, where you learn how to match a strategy to a type of problem. So instead of just executing procedures, you're saying you're you're starting to being forced to learn the structure of the problem and say, what's the strategy to approach this? And that's similar whether you're learning skills in soccer or math or in special operations. They'll give them these like really weird scenarios that would probably never happen um, in their training to try to keep that training as broad as possible, because that's how you you form these these less rigid, like conceptual models that you can then bend to a situation when you need to improvise.
1: And is that – does that also relate to where you talk in the book about the major league hitters who weren't able to hit the softball pitching? Yeah. Is that related to that or is that sort of a different mechanism of learning?
3: Yeah, no, no. And that was in in the sports gene in 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 my first book. Yeah, where – which I saw this once and was like, why can't they hit it, right? Where it's like – Major League, so there there used to be a TV show where this woman would go strike, a softball pitcher would go strike out all the best Major League Baseball hitters. And when I first saw this, I was like, how's that possible if they have reflexes to hit, you know, 100-mile-per-hour fastballs? They can't hit a 60-mile-per-hour softball. She's throwing from a closer mound, but the speed's so much slower that mm. the transit time of the ball is actually longer. And it turns out that, like, they aren't biologically capable. They don't have fast reflexes, right? It's They're totally... Two hundred milliseconds is like the basically the average reflexes, no matter what industry you're in, and that's a fifth of a second time it takes just to see that a ball's in front of you, for that information to cross the synapses to the back of your brain and to initiate muscular action, right. and that's half the total flight time of the pitch. So if you're actually reacting, it's way too slow. So what they've learned to do is from certain types of practice, do what um, skill acquisition scientists call chunking. They have like pick up on different. M- body motions of the pitcher, you know, rotation of the torso, movements of the shoulder, spin flicker of the pitch, which is the flashing pattern the seams make as the ball spins, group it into a chunk as soon as the ball's released that tells you where it's going in the future and you have to decide right away to swing or not. And so when they're faced with someone with unusual movements of the torso and rotation of the shoulder, different spin, they're stripped of that anticipatory expertise, right? right? And so they're their skill is like very context dependent, very context dependent. And when you even see like a pitcher come from Japan with a weird windup, they'll usually blow the lights out the first year they're here. And then they get steadily worse because people are sort of adjusting to that, to those type of visual cues that they are seeing from the pitcher. So, so in my mind, pitchers should, should be like changing their windups if they, if they could, you know, and, um, like, changing anything they can to, like, prevent players from picking up on their anticipatory cues because they're trained for, like, very specific visual cues.
1: Well, it's interesting, too, and I'm I'm such a fan of boxing, and that's one thing you can tell. It's just, like, the way in which guys lead. Yeah. And specifically, and, and Floyd Mayweather took a lot of shit for this because he was such a defensive fighter and so brilliant at counterpunching that he yeah. would sometimes take heat for not exactly having the most exciting fights. Right. But when they would slow shit down, the sweet science of watching him counterpunch like be so beautifully reactive in moments, and not sort of give that flash or that bot, or at least the with with as little as possible sort of signage that here comes this like incredible right. combination.
3: Right, and I mean that's that's the trick, right? So, in 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 a talk I used to give, I'd have this some videos in slow motion of boxers where you'll see someone get hit and while they're starting to throw a punch. And so it alters the way they're throwing the punch. And so they end up throwing it from a weird angle and will often throw like a knockout blow when that happens because it starts coming from such a weird angle. Cause they've just get getting hit that it will be like the other person can't anticipate it. And when you see in slow-mo, you can see it'll be like coming right at someone's eyes and they won't even have, have moved actually right. it'll, and you know, so you can just see the ripple going through their head and all this stuff because boxing's even more time-limited than baseball. Like, baseball pitch is about four-tenths four, four tenths of a second to get from the pitcher to the hitter. Muhammad Ali could execute a jab from the first motion that you could perceive to full extension, 150 milliseconds. That's, that's like the time it would take your eyelid to move if I walk up and shine a flashlight in your face, right? So if you weren't anticipating based on his body movements, you'd be hit by every punch. And, of course, his, like, brilliance in disguising where those were coming from meant that, you know, he was a genius boxer.
1: Jesus. You know, one thing I have to say in, in reading your books and, and listening to you on on these different podcasts, and I think to um, in one of them, you were asked about your writing process, and you said for the first year, you just read 10 scientific papers a day. Yeah, yeah. Your ability in which your recall for this information is unbelievable. What's it like in that head of yours? <laughs>
3: no, You know, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked that, because sometimes when I give talks and and by the way i just realized i might have some of that boxing video possibly on my laptop all right but i'm I'm not totally sure but i might (laughs) um the so when i give these when i give talks sometimes like i will have often memorized an hour-long talk and i'll improv off that but i will like have memorized it first anyway and people will come up and ask like more even than the topics of the talk sometimes is like how do you have such a photographic memory and and i don't like if i put my keys down on that table over there and spin in a circle i might lose them You know, it's very much, you know, in reading a lot of the performance literature, I've also read a ton of memory literature. Mm. And so I know like a lot of memory techniques. I also know that one of the really important things to do is try to form a semantic network, which means to connect the new things you read to like other ideas that you know of and think about how they connect. And that helps it stick really hard. Um, And so, and there is nothing better for building a semantic network than being forced to turn it into a narrative, into a book, right? So like once I've done the book, it is stuck. Like I can remember specific charts from papers that I read two years ago because I've been building out that semantic network where I'm trying to build lots of connections to my knowledge. This was, there's a guy in the in range. This is another thing like nobody's, I hadn't thought about in like two years probably. I love it. Like, um, named Ogi Ogis. And, and in range, I talk about his work about how people find careers that fit them well, match qualities, term economists use for like the degree of fit between your interests and abilities and the work that you do. But when I was, and we can talk about that, but when I was interviewing him, you know, we also got, we got along really well. And so we just started talking about other stuff and I Googled him and realized he had won half million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire. And he's, he's a neuroscientist and he actually got the million dollar question right too, but he had already decided to just stop with the half million. Wow. And I was asking him, you know, did you use like any of your, you've like studied memory. Did you use anything? And he said, oh yeah, absolutely. Cause one of the things you realize he was on with Meredith Vieira. And he was like, one of the things is they, they you can take a ton of time to answer the question, and then they'll just edit that out for the show. And so he said, Since I know like semantic network is important, if you think of it like a spider web, say you have a memory somewhere in the web, if you can get something that's, you know, connected to it to ripple the web, it'll like trigger that other memory essentially. And the closer it is, tied to that idea, if that makes some sense. Like, sure. And and so he would say During the time, he would just try to talk with Meredith Vieira about, like, as much crap as he could think of and let it keep going because – at some point, if you cue something related to it, you'll you'll like remember the answer essentially. So he said he was like just took forever as a contestant. That's
1: amazing, and, so, and
3: he got all the questions right, right? Even the million dollar one. Even, but he decided to walk with a half million.
1: I just love to hear what Meredith Vieira was coming up with with her small talk. Yeah, T- yeah. bro, come on, yeah, <laughs> speed it yeah, up. Yeah, you right. know, phone a friend or get the hell out of here. Totally. Um, Oh, similarly, just random tangent. Do you think um, that the James, the insane Jeopardy guy who literally almost – did he break
3: the record? Or I think almost, he did break the record, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, like I think he did break the record. Weeks
1: straight of winning, yeah, yeah. insane amounts of money. Do you think – I mean do you imagine that he was doing something similar with his brain networking?
3: That's my guess. I think so. Um, and also I think when you – When you do try to build semantic network, like think about everything you learn in relation to other things you've learned and try to connect it. And and you get, I think, a side benefit of something else called spacing, which is when – well, let me just give you an example. So um, in one of the famous studies that I mentioned in Range, Spanish – people were brought in taught Spanish vocabulary. One group is taught intensive eight hours in one day. The other group is taught the same exact stuff, but they get four hours – one day and then four hours a month later. And they bring them back eight years later and test them, no studying in the interim. And the group that had the spaced practice remembers 250% more, eight wow. years later, right? And so there's this, there's this effect called spacing that's great for memory, so I also use this, where you after you sort of learn something, ideally, you would wait until you're basically on the verge of forgetting it and then try to drag it up again. And that like shoves it back into your long-term memory where it'll be stuck. And I think when you're consuming a lot of stuff, like some of these Jeopardy champions do, like, you know, I've read some of Ken Jennings stuff. and He's obviously like very voracious learner. Mm. um, Is that some of these ideas come up again and again. And you're like, and this happens to me, like I'll be reminded of something. And so I'm consuming so much stuff that, You know, sometimes I'll even come back around and run into the same thing from a different, like a different avenue. And I think that gives you some of that spacing effect where you're coming back to the same ideas over time because you're like consuming so much stuff like that. So my guess is that he benefits from from a number of those things
1: I, it's funny though that you talk about your ability in which to remember all these things and, and give like this incredible keynote address but you can't remember your keys like yeah i just lost two pairs of ipod airpods in the last two days yeah. two pairs yeah <laughs> like, yeah and and you know what's the worst is that i then looked on like icloud where you can track them yeah and you see that they're like in some graveyard of like <laughs> they're like on the street Somewhere I was earlier, and I'm like, they're not there. Yeah, there's no need to return. They're gone forever. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, they, they might have well, they might as well have vanished. Yeah, I had no recollection of dropping them, moving them, leaving them. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, because I'm
3: worried about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's gone. That's right. Like if you don't attend to stuff, it's, it's, it's gone. Yeah, and and there's actually, there's sometimes when being distracted can actually sort of help with memory, but not in an instance like that, where like another one of these learning studies I mentioned is people who are, they're just being made to memorize like stuff that doesn't even matter, like pairs of words that don't have anything to do with one another. And then some of the people after they, they get training to memorize it, they are tested on them right away. right? And then other people um, are, you know, they get to wait a little bit and then they're tested on them. And then the third group has to do like math problems before they get tested. So they're like mind shifts completely. And then, like, when they're all going to leave for the day after the experiment, they're like, pop quiz, we're going to test you again. And then the order reverses where the people who did it right away, who did the worst the first time, now do the worst Mm. the last time. And the people who are distracted with the math problems do the best because it's that, that, like, effort of sort of trying to hang on to it shifts it to your long-term memory. Whereas if you do it and then you're allowed to practice it right away, you rely on just your short-term memory to drag it back up. And so you don't move it back to your long-term memory, basically.
1: That's so interesting because, you know, I'm an actor and so, I'll, I, you know, I'll be given 10 pages of, of sides to memorize for an audition. Yeah. And it's so interesting the way in which I go about learning it because I have this new thing, which is revelatory for actors, where there's an app on your phone. Because up until this point, I had to, uh, you know, bother my poor wife who just wants to enjoy her life and be like, To hey, read. <laughs> will
3: you
1: read these lines with me? But the act of of doing it and being able to hear it back and forth instead of just memorizing it off the page. And then yeah. if you add – if I'm like – I'm not trying to be disrespectful because I know you're giving me your time, wife. But like I'm going to now fold clothes while we do this scene like to add some outside sort of stimuli.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. And so do you eventually when you're practicing with her – and this is sort of a case where you have to memorize something very specific as opposed to like – information that you may have to drag up in a later conversation, like you're memorizing it in a very specific order. Do you get to the point where like she'll read her lines and then you're not looking at the page and you're trying to like just get it back with memory?
1: Yeah, of course, 100%.
3: And so that's like, that's capitalizing on what's called the generation effect where like you want to force yourself, you should probably do that really early in your practice. So the generation effect basically means by attempting to generate an answer, you prime your brain for moving things to long-term memory. And it doesn't matter if you get it right. In fact, there's something called the hyper-correction effect where if you get something wrong and you're pretty confident that you like, you know, this is the next line and it turns out you're wrong, when you learn what's right, it'll be even more like embedded in your long-term memory. And so I would say for everything that when people are trying to learn something like that where it's like a very specific thing that's in order, they should quiz themselves before they're ready. Because that's, even if you get it wrong, that's how you prime your brain for when you do see the right answer to retain it better.
1: The, the searching for it. Yeah,
3: yeah. So it feels bad because like you quiz yourself and you get a bunch of stuff wrong, but that's how you should start the learning. Like, don't try not to evaluate yourself. Just like, be like, this is how I'm setting myself up for the learning.
1: It's so funny as well that bad writing tends to be so much harder to learn than I even <laughs> <laughs> because there's, uh, you know, great writing, especially when you, you know, you watch someone like something that sorkin did or it's like there's a rhythm a music a musicality to the words but it also makes sense yeah and bad writing has this weird sort of it just drips of feeling clunky and unclear that it's not in your normal vernacular because the writer hasn't gone through the process of saying like but would someone really say this
3: yeah yeah that that's really interesting because you know we do rely on these familiar structures for Our language, right? Mm. So like if I gave you um, 20 English words just mixed up and asked you to memorize them, you'd have trouble. And if I then put those in a meaningful sentence, you'd have it no problem. even though they're the same 20 words because you've learned these systems of grammar and chunks of words that allow you to like instantly take meaning from that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with music. So um, if you look at like savants, you know, people who sometimes are on TV who can basically play pieces of music back exactly after hearing them one time, and so, so the theory for a long time was that they just have their um, memories are like tape recorders. It just plays back. And then someone decided to start studying them with atonal music where it's like not using the familiar harmonic structures. Like notes can kind of come out of nowhere. Sure. And, and, and you know, it often sounds kind of dissonant. Um, and if their brains are tape recorders, then it shouldn't matter what notes it is and it turns out it matters a ton that they can't play that stuff back right away because they are relying on these like familiar structures of harmony and i bet that's like very similar you know it's not harmony but there is like things that are like harmony in 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 writing um that you know you're probably used to and that you're sort of like kind of searching for almost yeah, they're not there. it's harder it's like more like atonal music it's like dissonant writing instead of dissonant music
1: so, do you think like just for the listeners so that they get a little bit of, you know, I feel like obviously it's chapter one for a reason, Tiger versus Roger. Yeah. like should we give them just like a slight sort of because I feel like that speaks so much to um, so much of what the book is about and and kind of was that was that first chapter what what um instigated the entire book?
3: In a way, it was. I mean, So I'll describe the chapter a little bit, Roger versus Tiger, where it it tells the story of Tiger Woods who, you know, his father gave him a putter when he was seven months old and he carried it around in his baby walker and 10 months he imitates a swing. Two years old, he's on national television. You can go see it on YouTube, like showing off his swing. And uh, by three, his father's media training him and all this. But fast forward to 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. Roger Federer, on the other hand, clearly as famous of an athlete now, but played – you know, some rugby when he was a kid, badminton, basketball, volleyball, soccer, table tennis, swimming, wrestling, skateboarding. I'm sure I'm missing something. But anyway, point being, it was a lot. And like He his, loved
1: wrestling, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Right. And his mother... Oh, yeah, so that's funny, actually. So his mother was a tennis coach, but refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. And then when his coaches tried to bump him up to a level with older boys, he's like, no, he just wants to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. Makes so, me like
1: him even more. Yeah.
3: You know what was one of the funniest things was, his mother... Was, like, not wanting him to put all his emphasis on sports. And so when he got good enough to get interviewed by a local paper and they come and ask him, like, if you become a pro, what will you buy with your first paycheck? And he says, a Mercedes. And his mother's, like, appalled because she's, like, not, no, you can't put all your emphasis on sports. So she asked the reporter if she can hear the interview tape. And he lets her. And turns out Roger said Mercedes in Swiss German, which means he wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. His mom's, like, all right, that's acceptable. (laughs) Sure. Like... And so he obviously was not on this, you know, whereas Tiger is like a four-year-old was saying, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas. And so my question, this sort of came out of a debate with Malcolm Gladwell where in my first book, I sort of criticized some of the 10,000 hours research and we were set up for this debate and I was kind of um, anticipating what he would argue. I was like, he's going to have to argue for early specialization based on what he's written. And so I went and looked at what all the science said about development of elite athletes and it showed that they like in almost all sports, have what's called a sampling period. They play a wide variety of sports. They, you know, gain these, like, broad general skills. They learn about their interests and abilities, and they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so I framed this in the debate as, like, the Roger versus Tiger question, like, which one of these models is the norm? And it turns out it's by far the Roger, and that golf is, like, a horrible model of most other things that people want to learn anyway. And so... After that, like, when we're going off the stage, that was the first time I ever met Malcolm. He goes, like, you know what you got me on was that Roger vs. Tiger thing. Like, you should write about that. And I'm, like, was so not ready to write another book that there was no chance. But we became running buddies and would sort of – we were both, like, national-level runners. And we would sort of talk about it from time to time, not ready to write another book. And then I have this experience where I go speak to some – some people had given scholarship, been given scholarships by the Pat Tillman Foundation, you know, the mm-hmm. late NFL player. These are military veterans who are given scholarships for career changes, basically. They're getting out of the military or, or just changing careers. And I give this talk about late specialization in sports, and I'm like, I should tack on something other than sports. So I do a little research about some other areas of the world and say like, and by the way, there are analogs to this in other fields. So like, don't feel too behind. And it was like catharsis for them like they're all coming up like I feel so behind I don't have like the exact resume you'd want for what I want to do all this ex-navy seal who was in grad school at Dartmouth and Harvard at the same time sends me this email saying how relieved he is you know and I'm like how can a person like this feel behind like in the conversations I had with Malcolm came back to my head and I sort of thought maybe sports is a jumping off point for a much more important project outside of sports so so that first chapter in sports just became kind of the analogy for all these other domains. So in that in that sense, it was like the spiritual beginning of this project.
1: It's interesting, too, that, that you talk about it because I can relate it to the only thing I can relate it to, which is acting, because I, I started when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And if you get into sort of the whether it was worth it or not, I, you know, I came from this sort of fractured family system and a single mom, only child, and my mom was great. But, you know, we had a lot of challenges and my mom has this great thing that she says, when we moved out to California, because I got a TV show, people asked her, did you know that Josh was going to be successful? And she said, no, I had no idea, but it made him feel good. Yeah. It gave him confidence. And if it was Little League or chess or an instrument, I, I would have supported that. Yeah, and And so I feel like while I couldn't have had any other path, now with a bit of you know, 20 years since then to sort of look back at everything, there is a part of me that, that felt as though that over-specialization was detrimental in certain areas. And I think about um, Adam Driver, the mm-hmm. actor, mm-hmm. who's very much the toast of the town now. His sort of interesting rise in, in that he had this sort of normal childhood but had an affinity for acting, then went to Juilliard, only after he, got, he had to leave the Marines. On medical leave because yeah. he got hurt in like a weightlifting accident yeah yeah and so and when you watch a guy like Adam Driver you think there's something so unrecognizable about him that that isn't reminiscent of any other actor, and I'm like, well, it's probably because he had that long, beautiful sampling period to actually not be like a good little actor boy in the way I was.
3: That is interesting. You know, there are a ton of paths by which people find success, of course, and I think like one of the messages I hope to convey in range is that there isn't like one formula for everybody, and that we should like diversify the pipelines by which we're willing to allow people to try and develop them and those things, but that is... I mean, that does jive with what you see. So in, in some of the chapters I write about art and music, that does jive with in the more, um, you know, creative forms of those realms. Um, The people who have like changed their field are always coming out of nowhere, sort of, right? Yeah. It's like you don't see them coming and they had or like, like Django Reinhardt, who sort of, you know, almost invented like the modern guitar, like solo riff kind of thing, was you know, he was playing guitar already, but then he gets in a fire when he's, you know, like 17 years old, loses the use of two of his fingers, is told, you know, he's never going to play again on his fretting hand, and has to relearn how to play the guitar using only two fingers and a thumb, you know, on his fretting hand, and so has to come up with a totally unique style, and like completely changes the trajectory of guitar after that. And so it's a lot of stuff like that, where, where people come from these experiences that you couldn't have like said, like, you know, nobody would have said like, this is the thing that you should do, right? Or, I mean, I, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided to become a writer, right? And I was a very ordinary scientist in training. And then I get to Sports Illustrated and I'm like, oh, those skills that were really ordinary over there are extraordinary over here. Yes. So I'm, I, I got there as a temp fact checker, right? I'm five, six years behind people who I'm doing the fact temp fact checking for. But they're all in line for like, to be the next NFL beat writer or whatever, NBA beat writer. They're all like fighting for the same little sliver. Whereas suddenly I'm on my own ground where I can do this like sports science stuff. And so if I can just be good enough at it, I don't, I'm not in zero sum competition with anybody. I can just do my own thing. And I think that's reminiscent of this, this research that really resonated with me personally in range called the dark horse project where this was the neuroscientist who was on who wants to be a millionaire. This was his actual research. Okay. Um, where he wanted to see how do people find fulfilling work, right? They didn't have to be like materially successful, but a lot of them were. But but just being fulfilled was was the important part. And they noticed, he and his his research partner, that these people would tell them like, well, don't tell people to do what I did because I started doing this other thing and then I realized it wasn't a fit or, you know, I went to law school or whatever. And then I tried this other thing and I sort of like – zigzagged and then i came in the side door so don't give anybody the advice to do what i did and they realized like 90 percent of the people would say like well don't tell anybody to do what i did right and that's why they called it the dark horse project because most of these people not everyone there were some people who did the linear path but it was the minor, small minority they all viewed themselves as dark horses as having come out of nowhere so that that's the project didn't start with that name originally but their their sort of common trait was this orientation towards short-term planning where instead of saying like here's who's younger than me and has more than me, they'd say, here are my skills and, you know, here's who I am right now and here what I want to learn and here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this one and then a year from now maybe I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And even when, like, bad things happen to them, um, you know, so Adam Driver, right, An in injury. I mean, my favorite writer is a guy named Sebastian Younger, wrote mm. The Perfect Storm and War and these other things. He was working as an arborist up in a, the canopy of a tree when he sliced his back of his leg with a chainsaw um, and started saying, like, maybe I should write about dangerous jobs. He's living out in Gloucester, Massachusetts. You know, right. two months later, the Andrea Gale goes missing in a storm, and he's like, commercial fishing, that's a dangerous job, right? And that's how that sets, like, the agenda of his whole career. If you look at everything he's done, it's been about dangerous jobs, whether it's in war or, you know, the perfect storm in commercial fishing. And so these dark horses tend to, instead of having, like, a 20-year plan, kind of work forward from whatever happens to them, like, in in this much more short-term planning kind of way.
1: Was there a temptation? I I remember reading the first chapter and thinking, oh, well, the next book has to be about, and I don't know Tiger Woods or Roger Federer, (laughs) but I'd venture to guess... I won't even say that. To me, just as an observer, Roger seems a little happier. <laughs> like, is there a temptation to sit, like, what the psychological impact is of being overly specialized at such a young age?
3: Definitely. Definitely. And I mean, I, very clearly, Tiger Woods had to go through this, like, extended maturation process at a much later point in life than, you know, most people do. And and it seems like he's learned a lot from that, but obviously it was very, you know, public. <laughs> difficult. Yeah, very <laughs> difficult and public process for him. Um, but, Yes, although I sort of proactively stayed away from some of that mm. because like with with the sports stuff, for example, um, I knew that if if like health of kids was the primary concern, there's all sorts of stuff we'd be doing differently, right? Like we wouldn't even have like a lot of youth football and things like that, right? or just
1: because of the the blunt force yeah. trauma, yeah. yeah,
3: yeah and and. You know, when I lived in Brooklyn, there was a U7 travel soccer team that met across the street from me. Like, nobody thinks six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people. They have to travel. Like, that doesn't have anything to do with their development. That's because they are customers for whoever's, like, running that travel team, right? Yeah. So there's all this stuff that um, is not good for, like, mental and physical health. But I wanted to stay away from some of that because I wanted to focus on, like, the performance message as much as I could because I had realized in sports – that was much more influential to how people thought. You know, it was sort of like, yeah, yeah, healthier. Yeah, yeah, okay. What about performance? And so that's where I really wanted to focus, even though I personally think there's a lot of, you know, (laughs) a a lot of interesting and important material just related to, like, how people feel.
1: So is, like, the weird sort of... Is the, the reaction you don't want to this book that sports professionals go, you know what, he was right. So we need to find the two or three sports that are the most sympathetic, like the most uh, flattering to their main sport. And then we're going to have them really focus on those and their main. And you're like, no, 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 that wasn't the point.
3: Yeah, no, no, that – yeah, I – that's a difficult thing. So I don't, I no more want to like prescribe some particular type of diversification than I want to prescribe specialization. Specialization works in certain activities. It's just dependent on the type of activity. But I think what I'd like to see is, for example, we were just talking about soccer, which is like a big early specialization sport in the U.S. Um, France started overhauling its, which just won the World Cup, overhauling its development pipeline decades ago. So a, a French kid, in their development pipeline probably plays half as many formal games as, as an american kid of the same age and they'll play on these small pitches and different number of kids and you know all this like varied up challenges basically and one of the guys who designed the system says there's no such there's no remote control meaning the coaches shouldn't try to micromanage the players because at that early level you want lots of unstructured problem solving in play and so the coaches aren't even allowed to talk at a lot of times And so I think they're sort of because I think the playing of multiple sports is really just a proxy for like the diversity of movement that you learn and the diversity of those anticipatory skills. Like so that so that the softball pitcher can't just strike you out like it's how many different types of problems you've faced. Right. Um, And so I think some of those places have done a good job of incorporating these principles in like a really, you know, a way that clearly has also led to high performance. So I'd like to see like a focus on those sorts of things.
1: Well, it's amazing to your point because I'm, you know, like the the New Yorker actor kid who has now been married into this um, very prolific athletic family. And my father was a quarterback for the Jets for ten years. Oh, wow! And uh, and my brother in law is six eight and just genetically gifted. It's not fair, really. I'll be honest. It's not fair. <laughs> and and he played a uh, quarterback in Division one football uh, in college. But what's fascinating to me is watching them play basketball Mm. or like so many other sports where they just, their bodies understand movement in a way that mine does not. Mm. And that, and conversely, I have a buddy who's one of my buddy, Kid David, shout out, who is the greatest, one of the greatest B-boys alive, break dancers. And he too, while not having like a huge athletic background, but he played when he was younger, Mm -hmm, mm Just that body awareness and movement, he can adapt into sports incredibly easily.
3: Yeah, that's like, I spent some time with the physiologist for Cirque du Soleil. And they have a bunch of Olympians. You know, they have amazing performers who have to pull off an incredible number of shows. And they, looking at some of this research, decided to try with some of their performers, making them learn the basics of three other performers' um, disciplines. Not because they were going to perform them. But just like to see if it would have some other beneficial effect. And it dropped their – first of all, they subjectively said it, it led to them having new ideas for some of the stuff they were going to do. But objectively, it dropped their injury rates by a third. They measure their injury rates next to Canadian Gymnastics. It's a Canadian jump company. They said dropped their injury rates by a third. So they're taking away precious practice time from someone's main discipline because it turns out to be so important, this movement diversity. We, everyone has theories about why that works so well we don't really know, but it does work, mm. um, that that sort of diversifying their repertoire has this, like, protective effect, you know? And, and we know from, you know, s- some of the studies, Is at first when I saw some of this stuff about athletes who go on to become elite just diversify early, I was like, well, it's just talent selection, you know? They're good at everything. But then you see these studies where, like, Soccer players in Europe are matched for skill at a certain age, tracked over years, and look at who gets better by the end of the study. And it's the people who have done this more, more unstructured play and dabbled in more other sports, right? And so we can theorize about why exactly that is, and I have ideas about that. But there is this, like, physical literacy and also protective effect to doing this stuff that's, like, shown up over and over again.
1: There's one thing you spoke about that I want to go back to is is – you talked about youth six soccer yeah, in New York yeah, yeah. and how like the people that are gaining the most out of that are the ones with a financial interest yeah. in it. I mean, we, cause to me as an outsider, this whole club, sports, travel teams, first of all, it seems like a money pit and yeah, these parents, and it totally like takes over the parent's
3: life. Yeah. That, that's the other thing. That's one thing that, you know, I, I. I would guess that most parents don't want to be spending more time traveling to the events than the events are themselves, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, So
1: they're not in nice places. No.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But, But those parents... They feel like they'll let their kids get behind, right? Like, the reason AAU basketball has had second-grade national championships where kids are, like, one-handed throwing a ball at a 10-foot rim isn't because anyone thinks that's good for their development. It's because, like, if you get them in the pipeline and you say, well, you can't be on the third-grade team if you're not on the second-grade team and on and on and on, you have those customers for a longer time, yes. right? In countries where there's a much more holistic development pipeline, like, the one thing we do have is we just have more athletes than anybody, so we have a great talent funnel. Like, our our college system keeps more young adults in serious training than, like, the rest of the world combined in a lot of sports. So we have a great talent funnel. But in in countries where they don't have a big population, so they can't afford that, like Norway, which, like, their last Winter Olympics was, like, one of the greatest Olympic performances ever. Like, they absolutely dominated, it's a tiny country. There was just an HBO Real Sports special on them. They've basically gotten rid of, like, all of the trappings of formal competition before age 12, just gotten rid of it, right? And not, not because, like, for kids' health, because, like, this is what works for like development you know at some point you obviously have to do structured practice sure but it it turns out that early is not the time to do that you actually curtail their development and this is really one of the you know they've recognized that the way to develop the best 10 year old athlete is not the same as the way to develop the best 20 year old athlete and for me this is one of the real underlying themes of range whether it's with that athletic development or the kind of spacing that we were talking about with memory where you leave some time to practice again or interleaving we talked about with math practice where you mix up these problems and the learner gets really frustrated is that sometimes the way to get the best short-term progress undermines your long-term development. And that's like a deeply counterintuitive idea for me, but it sort of pervades all the research in the book.
1: And do you have any theories about, like, obviously you speak about Tiger and, and how that sort of influences whole generation as well as perpetuated by, you know, in good and bad ways, Malcolm's yep. findings with the 10,000-hour thing, which I feel like I hear about every single day. Mm-hmm. But, like, this is nothing new, right? Like, yeah. like bullish fathers have been pushing their kids yep. to uh, to be the best for m- millennia, I don't know, yeah. centuries. <laughs> like, it, do you have any theories of where what it's born out of?
3: I don't – I mean, I, I assume – I think there's multiple things. And and by the way, before I say that, so Malcolm and I were invited back to that place where he had the debate just in March mm. at MIT, and that's on YouTube. And toward the end, he says... Um, I now realize I conflated two ideas: the idea that you need a lot, that a lot of practice is necessary for expertise, with the idea that that implies that in order to be good at X, you should start doing X and only X from as early as possible. And I no longer believe that's true. And so, great, like now he and I are in agreement, basically. Yeah. Right? So, and that's like that. He's a very open-minded guy. Um. And so, fathers, where does it come from? You know, I think I think some of it's probably like this vicarious living, right? Because there's an impulse. You know, I think there's always an impulse to tell people like when after you've gone through something like if I had only known, you know, then what I know now, yes. like, I can tell them how to do it right. But but you can't you're you're not them. But there's an impulse to do that, even though it doesn't necessarily work. So I think there's that vicarious living. And then there's which is not such a great instinct. And then I think there's the much more well-meaning instinct of not letting your kid fall behind because the other kid is at the sec- you know U six or U seven travel soccer team, sure. and so you don't want them to fall behind. And even though all the science shows that these head starts actually often hamper their long-term development, like I think it just taps into something incredibly human of like, should I let my kid get behind, right? right. Um, and so, and now there's more uh, more programs willing to cater to that fear than ever right oh. and more videos of you know youth highlight reels on YouTube and all this stuff and like most of those kids you know in a lot of sports you can almost like be assured if someone's on the junior national team they'll never make the senior national team basically but their highlight reel from when they're 8 years old will will be online and I think that's helped accelerate it even
1: cuz they burn they burn out
3: they burn out or or the the best way to get an advantage at that age, is to learn what's called closed skills, where you're learning like very technical skills, or how to execute plays and all these things like that. And those are the kind of things everyone will learn anyway. So it's not it's not a long term advantage. It's those those broader skills that scaffold later knowledge that are give you longer term advantages. But so like, if you want to, you know, if you want to win the 10 year old soccer championships, you like teach them how to execute certain plays and you will win because nobody else knows how to do that stuff. But that actually is not good for their longer term development.
1: It's interesting. It stands in the face of maybe something I've been wrong about. So I'm interesting to hear your thoughts. I have a friend whose kid is really into tennis and they've got him in all, you know, hours a day training. And they're almost considering pulling him out of school and homeschooling him. And I was like, guys, don't do that. Not yet. And he's very good. Mm -hmm. He's not great. Uh, Or what? I would assume great looks like as far as like rankings go and because mm-hmm. it starts at such a young age. And but granted, he's 12, 13. Right. So, so I mean,
3: pre puberty ranking guys is like a crapshoot basically.
1: That, that's so, in, so, so to your so I'm wrong. Cause my whole thing was like, listen, and granted, you know, his dad's definitely pushing, but my whole thing was like, guys, like if he was great, you'd know. Like, and he, he, he hasn't shown it yet. And like to your point, you're like, well, don't count him out yet.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a a lot of, like, different things you have to consider in a situation like that. To get to one, so I mentioned the pre-puberty, right? So I was just looking at data in the UEFA um, Junior Championships, you know, so, like, the biggest, like, junior soccer tournament in the world in Europe. And 47% of the competitors were born in January, February, or March, right? And that's because—and only 6% were born in the last three months of the year.
1: That's some Malcolm stuff, too, right? and that's
3: because when— when i mean this relative age effect is known like way before him but <laughs> okay. the but it's it's accelerated because the earlier you push selection the more you just get the kids who are like actually you know some months older when they were 7 or 8 and so they're actually like more biologically mature and you mistake that for talent right and then the problem is so one of the things that that Malcolm should have gone on to say is when he wrote about that he wrote about it in junior hockey in Canada but then if you look at the next level the nhl that disappears Mm. that relative age effect which suggests to you that those people you know that you were losing a lot of people that would have gone on to be the best so you were advantaging these people who are not going to make it to the top despite all those advantages um and so one i think it's just you want to delay selection and specialization as long as possible because you don't really know who people are until they go through puberty in tennis there's a famous study in sweden of players some players who went on to become like top 10 and top 100 in the world And one of the patterns was when someone would be identified as very good young, especially girls, they would be then taken into what's called a more restrictive environment. So they were doing – maybe they were playing other sports or whatever they were doing. Someone would say, like, this person could be really good. And then they would take them away from whatever it was they were doing that got them there and put them in this much more, like, specific technical kind of training. Mm. and almost all the girls that got identified early drop out by the time they're 17 right and cuz usually they were just like hitting puberty earlier or whatever and again they what when they get taken into these restrictive environments what happens is they start learning these closed skills like these very technical skills whereas the most important long-term things are those anticipatory skills right your ability to judge where the ball is going to go based on the body movements of the player and the rackets because you have to react faster you know than well you have to you have to respond earlier than you could really just react and so like the Australian Institute of Sport sort of studied this and found that people who early on play three invasion sports, invasion means like it's happening in real time, either people or a ball are trying to get by you, you know, basketball, football, volleyball, whatever, then are pick up more quickly any subsequent sport that requires those kinds of anticipatory skills. Maybe like being like multilingual where you have some advantage for like learning a third language. Um and that's not to say you don't specialize at a certain point but those anticipatory skills are are really probably the most important skills you need and those are not the ones that you're getting when you like you know unless maybe this is like the person whatever they would send him academy is like totally on top of this i don't know right. but probably not well it sounds like i owe them both an apology
1: <laughs> um i only have a few more questions and you talk about like how chess and golf are specific to are, are they pattern recognition sports yeah,
3: yeah yeah um pattern so chess is pattern recognition they're they're kind learning environments which mm. means basically they're based on patterns of one type or another all the information's clear and when you do something you get feedback that's immediate and accurate so like golf obviously right golf is People who study golf it as almost like an industrial task, try to do a known things over and over with as little deviation as possible. And chess, the grandmaster's advantage in chess is pattern recognition, essentially, um, which is also why it was one of the first things that was like completely successfully automated because computers are even better at that kind of pattern recognition. And so one of the points I'm making in the book is that you don't want to be in a chess-like profession essentially because you're getting automated if you are if you're in a profession where you can count on tomorrow being exactly the same as yesterday forever where it's just based on these repetitive patterns
1: robots are gonna beat you
3: yeah yeah if it's pattern recognition like you're in trouble
1: are there any other sports or things like that fall into that group of golf and chess like yeah i mean i think
3: i think any of the sports where like people are waiting for each other to take turns um so I think certain types of classical music fall into that. If you're learning just how to play things that are known, because that involves chunking, also where people like learn the music in groups of notes. Um, so if you're just trying to recreate that music, and in fact, there's some like very famous pianists, like some of the greatest pianists of the 20th century, who, you know, learn in, in, to play incredibly and are completely unable to improvise, right? Because they've learned this very specific um, you know, groups of notes and things like that and way of playing and they and they end up completely unable to improvise. So I think there are parts of um parts of like classical music that are like that. And all sports, I would say, are somewhat on the kinder end of these spectrums. So the other end is the wicked learning environment where like the rules can change, you can't count on pattern recognition, um, next steps might not even be clear. And I think that's the world that most of us are in. So so Robin Hogarth Artistry. Yeah. So Robin Hogarth who who Uh, you know, coined the kind and wicked learning environments, he actually talked about tennis. And he said, okay, so tennis is more is more wicked than golf. But he said, you know, even tennis is pretty kind, like the rules aren't changing. Sure, you can count on certain anticipatory skill. Um, The next steps are clear, feedback is clear. Most of us are playing Martian tennis, like in the wider world where people are doing something, but nobody's told you the rules. It's up to you to deduce them. And by the way, they can change at any point. And you know, you're know, you not just trying to recreate past performance. Mm-hmm. And so it's all on a spectrum, basically. But that's why in range at a certain point, even though I jump off with sports, I pretty soon say like, actually, sports is not a great analogy for a lot of these other things in the wider world, because we're not in these like incredibly rule bound, unchanging types of work in the wider world. And the more you are in that type of work going forward, the more likely it's automated.
1: So now, in you know, you've written this book, and we both have uh, newborns. Yeah, and so you're endowed with all the knowledge to be super dad.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: so I, I would say I'm asking this personally, but for a lot of people out there who have kids and and realize that this is you know sports and and more so, chess and and music and and all the other things like. What do you do? Like, what's what's the best course of action? How do you set up your kid to, A,
3: not hate you,
1: yeah. but, like, be you know, be successful without feeling that ultra pressure of, of insane specialization? Yeah,
3: I think there are sort of two main things to keep in mind. One is that we've been telling the Tiger and Mozart stories a little wrong in the first place, which is Tiger's father did, like, facilitate a ton of training, specialized training, but he responded to Tiger's initial... Display of this like very unusual interest and an ability in this sport, as Tiger has said himself. My father never asked me to play. Never. I was the one asking him. Mozart. I was going through some of his um, some some letters about him uh, when I was researching range, and there's one that sort of stuck with me where this musician comes over to his house when he's a kid to play with a group with his father. His father's a musician. And the musician, he records that that Mozart came in and said, like, I want to play with you guys. I want to play second. I can play second violin. And Mozart's father is like, get out of here. Like, you haven't had any lessons. You can't play second violin. And Mozart starts crying. And so the, the letter writer says, I'll go in another room with him and play with him just to calm him down. And next thing you know, they hear second violin coming from the other room, right? And the letter, this part I remember verbatim, he says little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that he could also play the first violin. And so then he goes and plays the first part, right? And that's so his and then with with totally made up fingering, right? Like he hadn't learned the and so in those cases, these incredibly one in a bajillion tiger and and Mozart cases, they were not manufactured by their fathers the way it's been told in a lot of books. I mean, they did facilitate after that, but these kids showed, this in very unusual interest and ability yeah. very early on. Pro- prodigies. Right. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And 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 I think the best way to get something like that, which is like, again, it's one in a bajillion, so there's, you know, Why whatever in- you do is not mostly not going to happen, but would be to expose them to a lot of stuff and see if they have that reaction to some of it, right? So one. Secondly, this, you know, what made an impression on me thinking about parenthood, and our kids are basically like the same age, four or five months, um, is this concept that the army recruited i know that's a bad starting like my parenting is coming from the <laughs> army but they, they they the army started like hemorrhaging its most talented people starting in the 90s with the rise of the knowledge economy the people who were going to be the most talented officers and it when they studied it, it turned out that's because they kept this very upper out structure meanwhile the economy changed to allow tons of lateral mobility and so you know these young people were like i don't i want to go try something different And at first, they threw money at them to try to keep them. And that didn't work. That was a waste of a half billion taxpayer dollars because the people who were going to stay took it and the people who were going to leave left anyway. And then they started these other programs, like one called Talent-Based Branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, get up or out, they say, here's a coach we're going to pair you with. Here's a bunch of career tracks. Try this one. Your coach will help you reflect on how it fit your interests and abilities. Then try this other one, this other one, this other one. Keep doing that with the coach. And we'll, like, triangulate where you fit. And that turned out to be much better for performance and retention because these people wanted some match quality, right? They want some autonomy to find their interests and where their abilities fit. And so I keep this phrase in mind, when you get fit, it'll look like grit because once you get people in the right fit, they display all these characteristics that look like they're just like really hard workers anyway. um, And so I view my role as a parent as the coach in the talent-based branching. Facilitate a whole bunch of options. And then make sure he gets the maximum lesson from each one that he tries, you know, to help him reflect on, on what goes on. So that, that's where I view my role as a talent-based branching coach.
1: I love it. Um, okay. Last question. It's something I ask everyone on the podcast. Uh, what are your one or two David Epstein commandments, things that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else?
3: Um, I'm going to steal this one from one of the characters in my last chapter, but, um, Read something outside your field every day. Doesn't have to be long. Can be quick. Um, and I think that would include also like talking to someone outside your field. Um, and keep in mind, and I'm stealing this one too from someone in range, her named Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people find work that fits them. I love this one. We learn who we are in practice, not in theory. This, this, and I've been keeping this in mind for myself too. And what she means is basically she went through all this psychology research and and found that we have this idea that we can just introspect and decide what what we should be doing, what our talents are, and what our interests are. And that turns out not to be true. We actually have to try things and then reflect on them to learn like if they fit us. And that means you have to put in some time to experimentation or you will not know yourself the way you think you might. And so my feeling would be set up these little experiments about what you want to learn or what you want to try. Make sure you take time to reflect on it. And that's how you actually get to know yourself in practice, not in theory, by just introspecting. Um, and so I keep a book of small personal experiments now, where I do this, and I found that to be uh, a really helpful, helpful thing. So do that, and don't feel behind. Sorry, that was three command. That was kind of a third I tacked on. We'll take plenty. Don't feel behind.
1: You could throw in a couple extras <laughs> Lots for the of road. Why her
3: ten is in fashion, you know? Commandments.
1: Give us some yeah. running tips. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're elite,
3: baby. Um, thank you so much. My pleasure. This is great. Having me. Thanks.
1: That was it. That was David Epstein. Right? Come on. It all worked out. Did it? Were you like, Josh, I had no idea what you were talking about the whole interview. And I've just unsubscribed. In which case, uh, I would say to you, why so angry? Take it easy. Eh, Take it easy. Um, Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. I want to go see the Joker. It looks excellent. I was having a debate with my buddy about it. He's like, ah, God, it's, yeah, but, you know, I like a little more super in my superhero movie. You know what I'm saying? I like it to be a little more razzle-dazzle, and this looks like a gritty thriller and war fucking drama. You know, I don't want to be depressed by my superhero movie. I want to, but I think I'm, I'm, you had me at depression. <laughs> I'm there. That Joaquin Phoenix, God, he's a good actor. How does he do that shit with his face? Joaquin, do you want to come on the podcast? I'll come to you. I've got a kit. Are you listening, Joaquin? No, you're probably not. It's a big weekend for you. Anyway, guys, please write to Joaquin Phoenix on my my behalf. And if you are the one out there, if you're listening now, and you are the one who gets Joaquin Phoenix on my show, I'm flying you out to L.A., I'm taking you out to dinner, I'm putting you up at a three and a half to four star hotel for two nights. So get to work. Love ya.